John 1 is where we are. I'll have our scripture reading and then we will dismiss the kids. If you have not checked in your children in our check-in booth there, please do so. But let me read to you the scripture first. John chapter 1. We're going to read, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 35 through the end of chapter 1 is where we are this morning. I'll read a portion of that for you this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. John 1, 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was, and staying there, they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Jump to 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom the Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. John 1 is where we are. Children, you're dismissed. For Children's Church. And the rest of us can turn to John chapter 1. We are concluding this morning chapter 1. And let me ask this question. Have you ever had an opportunity to be a mentor? Have you ever had an opportunity to teach someone, to show someone something that you were good at? Maybe this time of year it's, it's hunting. <laughs> Thinking of Scott's post. Good shot. Anyway, um, maybe it has to do with playing an instrument. I know Ricky has taught people how to play guitar or building some structural object like a house. Bill Blake in building tried to show me and told me to put the hammer down. But maybe, maybe it's just on a small project or maybe it's something like knitting or cooking. I, I, I'm constantly on the phone. Many of you know I love to cook. You check out my Facebook post and say, cut it out. Will you stop posting that stuff? I know. But I'll call my sister. I'll call my mom. Great cooks. And I, I'm going to learn from them. But is it ever that we do it in such a way that when we teach someone an instrument, we teach someone a skill, that we hope that they will do it better than us? That they will far exceed us? Maybe a, a better baseball player, a better musician, a better cook, a better artist. Here's a good question. For us. We talk a lot about discipleship, and we will today, but could we be trying to teach others what we have learned, experienced, so that they may become our disciple? So that as we learn and disciple one another, we're going to talk a little bit about that, they're being transformed in our own image, not into the image of Christ. Sometimes, that's what discipleship is all about, wrongly, of course. Looking more like me than Jesus. The theme of our passage before us in many ways is an extension, or shall I say a fulfillment, of what John the Baptist came to do. He said in chapter 3 of John, we will see that he, Jesus, must, no, he himself must decrease, yet him, Jesus, must increase. 
Our text this morning will see that what John hoped to do, point people to Jesus, is exactly what happens. We learned last week that John the Baptist came as a witness to testify to the truth that Jesus was not the Messiah, excuse me, that Jesus, that he himself was not the Messiah. So John the Baptist came to witness that he himself was not the Messiah, that he was not Elijah, that he was not the prophet. In fact, John says, I am not even worthy to untie the shoes of the one to whom I am pointing to. Who are you, John? John says, look at the prophet Isaiah. That's who I am. I I came to fulfill what the prophet said. I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, Yahweh, Old Testament covenant name. And John the Baptist, by the grace of God, did what he commanded to do. He preached repentance and he prepared the way for the Lord. His name is Jesus. We see in verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and testifies that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he say, well, how do you know that, John? John says there was a day in which God who gave me this commission, said to me, while you are baptizing, someone will come. You will baptize them. You will see the heavens open. You'll see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove, and he will not only rest but remain on him to him. He is the one that you are making the way for. He is the one, look at verse 34, who's the Son of God. You see, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle who wrote this this letter, this uh, gospel account, John the Baptist knew that he was to confront sin, but, but not, you know, there was no way that he could forgive sin. He couldn't die for sin. He could only point to the one who could. He knows that he could baptize people in water, and he did so, but only one with full authority can baptize with the Holy Spirit. He alone can give new birth. That's what John's telling us. Our text this morning is a great text to talk about the necessity of sharing your faith and discipleship. It is about that. We'll talk about that. But I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Focusing only on the details of that discipleship, which we'll look at, but miss the big picture, miss the main point of this text. Otherwise, if we miss it, and we hone in on discipleship only, what we're looking to do is produce little yous and little me's. What's the main point of the text? Starts with a J, ends with an S. Jesus. I know, tough question, right? All right, so three wonderful movements as we will see. Verses 35 through 36, we see the ministry of John is fulfilled. Then we'll see the Messiah, uh, verse 40, continuing through 42, the Messiah of Israel is found. We found the Messiah. And then as we finish this chapter 43 and following, we'll see that this Messiah to follow really shows himself. He reveals himself to who he really is. Okay, so that's our, that's our outline, at least, if you're taking notes. Number one, the ministry of John to be fulfilled. Now, I want to give you some chronological order here just to put things in perspective, okay? Look at your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one in the back. Please grab one. Look at your Bibles and look at verse 19. It says, and this is the testimony of John, when, that's a day, when, that day, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? It was a day that that took place. Look at verse 29. Then it says, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. 
Verse 43, the next day. Okay? I mean, you gotta, you know, you're reading the Bible. You gotta say, well, he's, he's making a point here. He keeps talking about the next day, the next day, the next day. We're on the fourth day. Three days after the confrontation is where we'll end anyway. We start on the second day. And you say, well, why, why, why that? I don't think there's a major spiritual significance that the apostle put this in his letter, in his epistle, uh, excuse me, his gospel this way. But I think, I think it points to two very important things I want to point out to you. Number one, it shows us that of the accuracy of what's taking place. This day we did this, this day we did that, this day we did this, and this day we did that. There's accuracy. Number two, it's a signpost. It is a, um, yeah, let's, let's call it a signpost let's, or a marker that whoever's writing this letter to us, which is the Apostle John, is saying, I was an eyewitness. This is not folklore. This is not... Once upon a time, in the forest was a prince. You know what I mean? This is on this day. I'm telling you, accuracy, I'm telling you, I was an eyewitness. That's why he's putting it there. Now, drop down to verse 34. Excuse me, 35. We're now three days into the narrative. First day was this testimony that John gave to the Jews. Number two was the last week we looked at with John the Baptist giving testimony that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Okay, now we're in the third day, verse, verse 35. Something else I want to point out to you, okay? This is important. When you read the synoptic gospels, which means similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is very uh, succinct all by itself. When you read the synoptic gospels, you will find some of the disciples in which we'll talk about here, you'll, they're mentioned throughout the other synoptic gospels and, and you find them following Jesus. But what you have here in front of your hands in John 1 is the first and initial contact that these disciples made with Jesus, okay? So the events that we're reading right now happened between Jesus' baptism, we know he got baptized because John gives testimony to it, and Jesus going into the wilderness temptation and then coming into his ministry and then calling the disciples in the boat, Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 4, drop everything and follow me, and they drop everything and they go. Sometimes what you've been taught, I shouldn't say, let me say it this way. Sometimes when you read Matthew 4, you think that Jesus comes along and he sees the, those disciples, it's Andrew and Peter and John, and says, come follow me, they drop everything and they go, as if it's the first time they met. It is not. Yes, they dropped everything. Yes, they dropped their life, they dropped their business, and they moved on. That's true. But here in John 1, what we have is an earlier record, the first record, where there's contact made with Jesus. Then Jesus is driven into the wilderness. He comes into his Galilean ministry, and he calls them in Matthew 6, and the, excuse me, in Matthew 4 and the other synoptic gospels. And you see that call where they drop everything. Now, I'm not sure if that's helpful to you, but I think it might be because some of you came to know Jesus that same way. You were introduced, maybe you were in church, you're hearing the message of the good news, you're hearing about Jesus, you have a friend talking to you about the Lord, you're, you're, maybe you're reading his word, but you're still unsure. And you have that period in your life where you're like, ah. And then one day, the Spirit of God opens your heart. The Bible calls it new birth. And you see the glory of Christ, you see your wickedness, and you fall on your face and you say, yes, yes, he is the Messiah. He died for my sins. And, and, and you said, you know what? I hear the call, and I'm going to follow you. So some of you can relate. So here's the first initial meeting, verse 35. The next day, okay, the next day, verse 35, day three. The next day, John, the Baptist, was standing with what? 
two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, right, baptism already taken place, I already know. Behold the Lamb of God. He said that earlier, but now he says it again the next day. The two disciples heard him say this, and what did they do? They followed Jesus. So here we see two disciples, they're with their rabbi. He's called John the Baptist here. They're his disciple. For those of you who may not know, a disciple is literally a learner. One who listens and follows a teacher. In those days, you would actually follow him around. You would leave everything and you would go and you would follow the teacher. And you would learn not only from his words, but you would watch him in his life and learn from his actions. That's what it would be like. What does this text tell us? I think it's fair to say there are two men who are with John the Baptist. They're his rabbi. They're his disciples. That's what it says. They were being taught by and watching the actions of some guy coming out of the wilderness, dressed in a toga, wrapped in a belt, eating locusts and bugs, drinking honey and preaching, repent, screaming at people, right? That's their rabbi. That's who they're following. That's who they're watching. That's who they're listening to. So I think it's fair to say at this point, right? I think it's fair to say at this point that their hearts are being softened. Right? I think it's fair to say that they were rather sensitive or being sensitized towards sin and being prepared. As John said, I'm not the guy, but be ready for the Lord. That's his disciple. And all of a sudden, this rabbi, this teacher comes by and goes, hey guys, right there. He's the lamb. He's the lamb of God. He's the one. And now at that point, you can only imagine Jewish men, Jewish women, Lamb of God, God and lambs, immediately their mind, their heart goes to the temple. The temple laws, the substitutionary sacrifice that they would do every single day and particularly on days of atonements. That was clearly laid out in the more of Moses. How to approach God? You do it through sacrifice. Hey guys, there's the lamb. You see that here. And according to our text, these two disciples whose heart was being prepared through repentance and recognizing their sin heard their teacher, John, point to Jesus and their allegiance, notice the text, immediately changed. That doesn't happen back in the first century. You don't just walk away from your rabbi. But here, we realize that's not the goal of John the Baptist, to follow me. The goal of John the Baptist is follow me until he comes, now go follow him. And that's what you have here. So how important, and I ask this question, is it to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus and be constantly reminded that he must increase and I must decrease? Oh, how easy it is to want to posture ourselves. Look how smart I am. In the seat of recognition, the approval from men, I have people follow me, not John. John was quick to say, you know what? I need to follow Jesus. And Jesus turns and sees what's happening, and he says to them in verse 38, what are you seeking? NIV, what do you want? In other words, what is it that you're looking for? Notice he doesn't say who. See the text? He doesn't say who are you looking for. He says, what are you looking for? Great question. It's from Jesus, right? It should be a great question. For some of us, this morning could be as simple as just looking for a new job. Seeking a spouse. Where do I go after I graduate high school? What college am I going to? What do I do after college? You have a lot of questions that you're seeking for, but that's not really what Jesus was getting at. This is a very relevant question because deep down in every human heart, there's a search. 
a search of purpose, a search of identity, a search of significance, security, a search for peace, a search for joy. That is one question that plagues every human heart ever since Genesis 3. You see, prior to that, Genesis 1 and 2, before sin enters the world, God gave us purpose and identity, security, joy, and peace. It was in him. But when man rebels and man is separated from God, moved out of the garden, cast out, we died spiritually, the Bible says, that produces in us this longing. The longing, unfortunately, at this point, drives us away from God because our hearts are cold and we're sinners and we rebel. We want to be our own lords and our own saviors. You see, sin always separates And sin, ever since Genesis 3, drives us to be satisfied, to be justified in our our pursuit of who we are and identity and purpose, security and significance. It drives us to things that will never satisfy. We're never meant to satisfy. It's called idolatry. That's our heart away from Christ. When you think that money is enough, then all of a sudden you have some. It's not satisfying. You know, when you think that you have, you know what, if I only have looks, if I only have power, if I only have prestige, if, it's, if it will just give me satisfaction, give me peace, give me joy, give me purpose, we have it. It doesn't do it. It was C.S. Lewis who said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world, end quote. The problem, us, the problem we face is Sin. A rebellion toward our God has caused us to be our own lords, our own saviors, thinking that we can find satisfaction and justification in our own ways, in our own life, in our own purposes, in our own significance, but we can't. And that barrier between us and God, which is called sin, needs to be dealt with. What do we need? We need forgiveness. Look at the text. The disciples whose heart has been plowed Soil turned over by the message of John of sin and repentance is now having the seeds of the gospel planted by the Savior, the Lamb of God who substitutes, sacrifices, and takes away sin. And and he turns and he says, what are you seeking, man? Check your heart. What are you really looking for? We know there's a pursuit. We know what you need. Do you know that? Rather than answering the question, they do with one of my, my lovely daughters used to do to me all the time. You ask them a question, they ask a question. Like, I, don't answer, answer my question first. But Jesus in his glory and beauty. So they say to him, they look at him and say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So what are you seeking? Answer the question. No, I'm not going to answer the question. Where are you staying? You think I would say, answer the question first and I'll tell you. That's what I would have said. It wasn't like, give me your address. I want to put in my GPS. I got my car. I don't want to miss your house. Show me. You know, it wasn't like, where are you staying? And that, it wasn't that way. It wasn't like, you know, I'd love to see your house. Oh, nice deck. Beautiful backyard you have here, Jesus. You know, it wasn't that kind of what are you saying. In that day, what it meant was, where are you staying? I want to come. I want to fellowship. I want to hear what you have to say. That, that's what he's saying. You know, where are you staying? I want to spend time. Look what it says. It's about the fourth hour. So it's getting late. Sun is setting, everyone's looking to go home, and they're like, where are you going? We want to go with you. And then the beautiful, look at verse 39, the beautiful, glorious, uh, you know, invitation, come, come. Come and you will see, imperative, uh, conveying, uh, if you come and I want you to come, 
You can almost see it in Jesus' eyes. Come, 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 come. I, I want you to see. So they come and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour, which is about four o'clock. What a beautiful picture, is it not? We see these hungry disciples who ask of Christ to spend time with them and his desire and call to come and do so. He will say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That, that come is, is to you, is to me, is to everyone. Come. What's the result? You will see. Could John be alluding to something more than just where Jesus is staying? Yes, I think so. And that they actually see where he is? John Piper writes, on one level, it could mean simply, you will see where I'm staying. But in the mind of Jesus and the mind of John, this meant, if you will truly come to me, you will see spiritual reality. You will have spiritual sight, end quote. That's what I think is happening here. And this invitation for you is the same thing. To come, to come, come to see Jesus. Come and you will see, as John says in verse 14, the glory of the only son who is full of grace, who is full of truth. And right here it all begins. For these two disciples, the invisible God is made visible. This time of union with Christ is the first part of this radical change that's going to take place in their life as they walk and follow Jesus. So my question to you this morning is, do you hear Jesus say, come? If you are weary and laden, I will give you rest. Come and you will see the invisible God made visible. You will know me and have your sins forgiven. I hope you don't neglect that call this morning. I hope you respond. Look at the Messiah was found, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, verse 41. He found, first, he first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Now, look at verse 40. We know that one of the disciples of John the Baptist was Andrew, right? The apostle Peter's brother. We don't know who the second disciple is. It never is mentioned here. Okay, so there's speculation. Who's the second guy who was with John the Baptist now turned and started walking walk with Jesus? Most commentators, and I would agree with them, believe that it is John the Apostle who wrote this gospel account. And the reason they say is there's a deliberate absence of naming the second disciple. You say, what's the big deal about that? Nowhere in here does he mention himself. Very strange. He's written all over about, he's written about all over in the other synoptic gospels, but he leaves himself out of his own writings. And here he's being left out. Number one. Number two, which I think is important too. Verse 39, it was about the 10th hour. That's pretty direct. It kind of forces us, or at least, at least for me, this meticulous information is, is because the one who wrote that was there. I know what time it was. You see what I'm saying? I think it was John. And here Andrew, who met Jesus through the witness and testimony of their rabbi, John the Baptist, now goes and finds his brother Peter and testifies to him and wants to introduce him to Jesus. What you see here, and I don't want you to miss, is this working together, this communal working together. You have John, Andrew, fishing buddies, together with Jesus. The next day, Andrew goes to find Peter, and you can only imagine the conversation. Hey, Peter, I've been looking all over for you. And Peter would say, at least I would say, dude, where were you? I was fishing all night by myself. You didn't help me at all. That's what I would have said. Where were you? I was with Jesus. He says he's the Messiah. Really? John, John was with me. 
John was with me. Look at the word we. It says we. We have found him. We believe he's the Messiah. John was with me. He's saying the same thing. You got to come and meet this guy. He claims to be the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Come and you will see. And you see this communal working together, a tag team, I think, and bringing people to Jesus. Do you have somebody like that? Maybe your neighbor is a Christian and you're ganging up, and I mean that in a good way, with all the other people in the neighborhood praying for him, talking about Jesus. I had somebody at the, when I worked in a correctional facility like that. It's called the God Squad, because my buddy would be like, yo, I had a great conversation with so-and-so. Really, yeah, all about Jesus, okay. Two days later, I would be working with him, and I'd be like, hey, let's talk about Jesus. That's funny, you should say that. Two days ago, Daryl came and he told me, I'm like, really, that's interesting. I knew all about it, but you know, I wanted to think that was a miracle, but anyway. Hey, anything I can use as long as Christ, Christ is preached, right? So, you know, this conversation, we have seen the Messiah. Now, aren't you glad? I'm not going to give you a microphone, but just to yourself. Aren't you glad somebody who loves Jesus, who met Jesus, who's following Jesus, who's walking with Jesus, shared Jesus with you? Maybe a mom, a dad, Sunday school, children's church, co-worker, neighbor, friend. I know when I came to faith in Christ, it was through the witness of a neighbor. And when I needed the help most desperately, I'm going to talk about that when we get to John 3, he was there for me, and he opened his Bible. And he shared with me, there's an excitement about knowing Jesus and about sharing him with others, right? You ever met somebody really famous? Someone who you respect, whom you love? Probably most of you have. I did. My wife and I were going to Connecticut to a marriage conference, and, uh, you know, Friday afternoon, Friday evening, first day, then Saturday and Sunday. And, of course, it's Friday, so you worked all week, you're tired, and you get into Connecticut from here, and, like, this traffic, everyone decided to go to Connecticut in the whole universe, like you did. And you finally get there, you get about three minutes before the conference starts. We're rushing in, and I see a coffee bar. I'm like, oh, that's what I need, man. I need some juice, right? I need some coffee. So I go over to, I said, wait right here. Let me go get some coffee. And I go get some coffee, and I'm looking up. I'm like, wow, there's a thousand different coffees. And maybe I'll get a little something. I look over, and I look over next to me, and there's someone standing there looking at me. He's looking down at me because he's like 6'4", and I'm looking up to him. And I realize that's Bernie Williams from the Yankees. And I don't have to tell you what a Yankee fan I am. This was back in the day when, when he was playing. So I'm like, hey, Bernie, what's going on? Hey, how are you? Good. I, I talk a little about the Yankees. Meanwhile, inside, I'm like, holy man, are you kidding me or what? <laughs> so I get my coffee. I do a little handshake, trying to be really cool, walk away. I'm like, oh, that was cool. That was cool. My wife's like, do you know that guy? I'm like, do I know that guy? That's Bernie Williams from the Yankees, you know? I love telling that story. No comparison, Right? King of kings, Lord of lords, king of, ruler of sovereign one who died for my sins and rose from the dead. I love to tell the story about Bernie Williams. Do, Bernie Williams, do I love to tell the story about Jesus? The great God and Savior who became man, John tells us, who dwelt among us and we'll see who went to a cross to die for my sins, all my wickedness, past, present, and future, to bring me and to reconcile me to my God. No comparison. No comparison. He is the king of kings. And Andrew was just so excited. I think in verse 41, he first found his own brother, Simon. That, that phrase, he first found his own brother, means the first thing that he did the very next morning is, I want to find my brother, where is he? Right? That's the first thing he did. And he's like, come, you have to meet this guy. Andrew's like, you got to come, Peter, you got to come. And Andrew's probably the older brother. You got to come and meet him. Andrew, we will see in chapter 6 and chapter 12, loves to bring people to Jesus. 
You know those kind of people? They love to bring people to Jesus. Listen to me, man. Come to me, Jesus. That, that's Andrew. And that's the secret, right? Spending time with Jesus, reading his word, praying, hearing his voice, and then going and telling others. That's what we see is happening here. And he says, we found the Messiah, or Christ in the Greek. Messiah is Hebrew, and Christ in the Greek. And it means anointed. The anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, the anointed one uh, was talked about as being prophets and priests. They were anointed. Uh, Even kings had a special anointing. But here, when Jesus is talked about as the Messiah, he's not only an anointed one or a anointed one. He's the anointed one, right? He is the final king who will deliver and, and establish a kingdom. That's who he says he is. At least at, least at some point, at some level, he, they're starting to see this. Now, we don't have the conversation between Andrew and John. We don't have it. But we know that they met. We know that they spent the evening. I don't think he understands completely when he gets his brother and says, this is the Messiah, but, but they're getting it. They're getting it. Obviously, he saw something. He heard something in Jesus to make him run out and go tell his brother. Look at verse 42. He brought him, Simon... To Jesus, if you're warm in here, you can open up some windows. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're cold, leave them closed. But verse 42, he brought him, Simon, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, I love this, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I, I realize this is somewhat cultural. But, but you see what, what's going on here? Like, what is that? What, Jesus just sees him and says, oh, who are you? Oh, oh, oh I see. You're the son of John? Oh, your, your name now is Peter. Like, really? Like, who does that? You're like, well, my mom and dad gave me my name, Lou. You know what I mean? That's my grandfather's name. Nope, your name. It's like, you know, even if you see the best preacher, the, you know, the most devout Christian, you know, someone who really loves Jesus, you're very fond of. I, one day I walking down the hallway, I was at a conference, and who's coming up the walkway? It was John Piper. All alone in the hallway, I got to say hello. Can you imagine? What's your name, Lou? Your name now will be Jim. Really? So you just like, just change my name because you like, I don't look like Lou. I look like a Jim and now you're Jim. (laughs) Well, you know, what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. Jesus is showing his authority to Peter. You know, God changes names. Your name is Abram, it will be now Abraham. Your name is Sarai, it'll be Sarah. God changed Jacob's name from supplanter or, or heel grabber to Israel wrestling with God. Simon? Your name is Simon. Your name now is Peter. Listen, Jesus Christ has the authority to change your identity. Jesus has the authority to change your identity. No explanation here like we see in Matthew 16. You are Cephas, you are Peter, Petros, the rock, and upon your confession of faith in me, I will build my church. No, you don't see that. Why? Because John is making it clear that Jesus has authority to determine your name, your destiny. That's the point, authority and revelation and glory. Not of Peter, but of Christ. The name points to who, G, who, excuse me, who Peter will become. Remember the question? What are you seeking? We seek an identity that only Jesus, our great God and King, could give us. No identity. There is no identity for you, for you and your life better than what Jesus can give you. Revelation 2. He who has an ear, let him hear. To what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manner, and I will give him a white stone with a new name. 
written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus can change your identity. Number three. The Messiah is to follow is to be revealed, was revealed. Verse 43, look what it says. The next day, day four, or if you like, three days after the confrontation, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He could do that. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, right? Same town, same neighborhood, right? And we see Jesus say to him, listen, Philip, follow me. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Follow me. What does it mean, follow me? Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard Jesus, excuse me, heard Jesus and followed him. Verse 38, Jesus saw them following him. Verse 40, Andrew is identified as the one who is what? Following Jesus. Verse 43, Philip, come, follow me. Okay, clear in the text. Says a lot. What does it mean? What does it imply? Let me give you a couple things. Number one, following Jesus implies a different direction. I have my own plans, my own ways, my own travels, my own path, and now I'm not doing my own thing. I am following him. That's what it means to follow Jesus, going in a different direction. You remember the Bible talks about sheep. That's what we are. Follow their shepherd. They're not supposed to go their own ways. They're supposed to hear his voice, follow his lead. When they follow the shepherd, they get fed well. The shepherd puts rocks in the stream so they can come and drink. The shepherds uh, take uh, charge and protection from the sheep, watch over them at night, right? Sounds like imagery from the scripture. There's a real sense, too, in scripture that the sheep not only follow their shepherd, but they trust their shepherd, Jesus will say, my sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. I lead them. They follow me. They know my voice. A stranger they won't listen to. They'll flee from him. Why? Why why this illustration? Well, the foundational or fundamental reason we follow the shepherd is need. N-E-E-D. Very simple. We need food desperately because in and of ourselves, we are spiritually starving to death. We are empty, rebellious sinners who walk away from God. We desperately need water because our souls thirst and in and of ourselves, listen, we could never be satisfied. We need food, we need water. We're in desperate need of protection because we're dumb sheep. You know, if that offends you, okay, I'm a dumb sheep and I get in all kinds of trouble. Not you, of course. I'll fall off the cliff. I'll get misplaced. I'll be eaten up by my enemies. You see, the imagery is not that we are warriors who, with Jesus, are willing to fight the world. The image is we are frail, weak, vulnerable sheep. That's why we follow Jesus. You cannot come to Jesus with your fists and your swords and your abilities as some tough guy, some tough girl. You come to Jesus broken and weak and in need, walking and following behind him as he provides food for your heart, water for your souls, and protection from the evil one. The moment you get out from behind Jesus is the moment that we are all in grave danger of starving, of dehydrating and being attacked. Follow me, he tells Peter. Excuse me, Philip. And then Philip does, and look what he finds Nathaniel. Nathaniel's not convinced right away, although he does say in verse 44, we, excuse me, verse 45, we, notice the communal again, we have found, 
the one Moses spoke about. See that verse 45? This was and continues to be the sharing of the gospel, the spreading of the kingdom, the building of the kingdom that God does himself, but he chooses us to do. Meet Jesus, love Jesus, and share Jesus. New followers of Jesus bear witness, and in turn, they share with others. They become disciples, share with others. That's the multiplying process that God has chosen to do. Philip is declaring what, what is somewhat similar to what Andrew does, the Messiah, but this one, notice what he says. He says, whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. D.A. Carson comments that the earliest disciples could not identify, could not have identified Jesus as the promised coming one, the Messiah, without believing that the scriptures pointed to him. And that's what, that's what he's doing here. For that was part of the common stock of Jewish messianic hope. End quote. That's D.A. Carson. Here Jesus said to be from Nazareth, son of Joseph. They know he's from Bethlehem. Or at least he was born in Bethlehem. But he was born in Bethlehem, moved from Bethlehem, and grew up in Nazareth. That's the fulfillment of two scriptures, right? I was born in the Bronx County of New York, and I was raised mostly in Rockland County. So both are true. Same thing here. He's from Bethlehem. He's from Nazareth. He's the one that they're writing about. Verse 46. And Nathaniel says to him, I love this. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Here we go. Come and see. Come and check it out. Come and you will see. An invitation. But Nathaniel isn't biting so quick, right? He's having a hard time. You know, I don't know, man. Something really good coming from, you know, I don't make a city because you may come from that, but you know what I mean. Like, nothing good is going to come from there. And then Jesus says to him, look what he says, Nathaniel, behold, in you, or an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Most commentators point that the statement that Jesus is making using deceit And Israel is a pun, is a play on words, because Jacob, who was Israel, was a deceiver. You're not like Jacob. You're not like Israel. In you, there is no deceit or no guile in some of your translations. He doesn't mean perfection. What he means is there's no dishonesty. There's no fraud. There's no trickery as there was in Jacob. Right? He, remember, he, he deceived his mom and dad. He, he deceived his brother and received the firstborn. What is happening here is Jesus looks into Nathaniel's heart, the omnipresence of God, or the all-knowing of God, and he looks in and he says, in you there's no deceit. Right? And he's like, really? But sometimes when you're that honest, you get in trouble, don't you? Sometimes when you're honest, your mouth talks, your head doesn't engage. And you show what a real racist you are. Could anything good really come from Nazareth? So he wasn't without issue. He may have no deceit, but he, that was a dumb statement to make. I, at least I, that's the way I read it. Verse 48, he's shocked. Like, oh my, how do you know me? Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Supernatural knowledge. You know my heart, and now you know where I am. Like, are, really, how do you know that? Some people make a big deal out of a fig tree, saying, you know, in the Old Testament, and some rabbinic language, the fig tree has to do with prayer and confession, and that Jesus sees his heart, and he's praying to God, and yet Jesus kind of sees that. Maybe, I, I, don't, know if I, I don't know if I would read into that. Um, again, D.A. Carson says, John's chief point here is Jesus' supernatural knowledge of Nathaniel, not his activity. I think the fact that he saw his heart, knows he without the seat, and then knows where he is, is enough. And Daniel, at that moment, is like, Rabbi, you are 
the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Philip becomes his disciple. He hears the message. They bring him to Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to him. Now look, at, look how beautiful this is in chapter 1. All the different expressions, titles, and names of Jesus. He's the Word. He's the Word. He's the Word who was God. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. Verse 9, Jesus is light. Verse 17, he's grace and truth came through Jesus. He's the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He's the rabbi, verse 38. Verse 41, he's the rabbi. We found the Messiah. He's the son of Joseph. Mark all that off in your Bible. He's the lamb, he's the light, he's full of grace and truth. He's the rabbi, he's the Messiah, he's the son of Joseph. And now look what he says. He's the son of God and the king of Israel. Wow. Son of God, same nature, equality, uniqueness. That's what it means. When he says he's the son of God. And look, not only is he his son, but he's also the son of man. And that's where we're going to end. Verse 50. Okay, verse 50. I think I have that here. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than this. That's nothing. Come follow me. You'll see greater things. And he said to him, listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see what you will see. You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Right? You will see. Now, I want you to notice something because this is important too. In verse 50, he says, because I said to you is singular. He's talking to Nathaniel. You will see, Nathaniel. You think that's good weight? You will see. Verse 51, he changed it from a singular to the plural. And he says, this is for everyone. 51 is you, is you all, if you're from the south. Okay, truly I say to y'all, you all of you will see the heavens, okay? So this is not just for Nathaniel, this is for us today. Now, Jesus already alluded to Jacob earlier. And now he is alluding to Jacob in a dream he had. In in Genesis 28, uh, Jacob leaves Bethsaida, he goes to Haran. He's tired, he finds a place, you know the story some of you do. He finds a rock, he lays down, he's resting, he's leaving Bethsaida, he's on his way to Haran, and he falls asleep. And in the middle of the night, he has a dream, right? He has a dream. There's a ladder, there's a stairway coming down from heaven, resting on the earth, with his tops reaching to heaven. And the angels of God are, are ascending and descending. This is in Genesis 28. This is something Jacob is seeing. And above that stands the Lord. And you know what he does to Jacob? He's running from his family, going to a place he knows not know. He does not know. And the Lord says to Jacob, Genesis 28, he affirms to him the covenant he made with his father, Abraham. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, which is his father, Abraham was his grandfather. I am the Lord. I am confirming a covenant I have made. I'm going to promise. I have promised and I will keep my word. And at that point, Jacob knows that the latter was that mediation point between God and man. And Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that now he is the mediator between God and man. First Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrew tells us that he is the greater and better covenant, the mediator of a better and greater covenant. This latter in Genesis 28 is a foreshadow of Christ and his work of salvation. But but referencing Jacob's dream, Jesus was telling his disciples, listen, 
Jesus was referencing Jacob and his dream because he wanted to teach his disciple the invisible made visible. That Jesus is the final and ultimate expression of God. He alone provides the fullness and disclosure that Jacob only got to dream about. You see, the latter that Jacob saw was pointing not to the, uh, a place, not to a thing, but to the person of Jesus Christ. He is the latter. He stretches from heaven to earth. He came down from heaven as a man and stretched up as he died for an atonement of sin, fully God and fully man. He is the one that stands in the gap. He is the one who dies and reconciles us to the Father. And then Jesus, that's not enough. I'm the one that Jacob dreamed about. I'm the latter. He says, look what he says. The angels will descend and ascend and come upon the man. Look what it says. Ascend on the Son of Man. I have that verse up. Do you know what he's saying? The angels are ascending and descending. I am the latter. I am the mediator. I am all those things. Then he says, look what he says. I am the son of man. Jesus did not like to use the title Messiah. It had political overtunes, but he loved to use the son of man. What does he mean? uh, Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 is exactly what he means. Daniel prophesied and says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, kingdom, all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. That word is worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Never pass away. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. That's me. For hundreds of years, they've waited and anticipated. But look at the similarities. Have your Bibles open back at John 1. Daniel says that the Son of Man approached the ancients of days. There's communion. There's uninterrupted communion. There's the ancient of days who's God the Father, and there's the Son of Man coming into his presence. Angels, ladder, presence of God. Daniel says that he was given authority and sovereign power I will name you. I know your heart. I know where you are. We see the same attributes in our text. He commands people to follow me. Daniel says he has an everlasting kingdom. That he will come and destroy all things and put all things down and he'll have an everlasting kingdom. What does the text say? You are the king of Israel. You are the Messiah. You are the lamb. And lastly, let me point to you that Jesus does not ask us to climb the ladder for our new identity. He does not ask us to climb the ladder so that we could somehow work our way up to God and receive that identity, receive the forgiveness of sin. He doesn't do that. He says, I am the access. I lived the perfect life that you could never do. I died the death that you should have died. I am the ladder. You don't need to climb. I will bring you to God. Trust in me. I'm the only one who has the authority to say to you, what you are seeking is found in me. That's what Jesus is saying. Trust me. Come into the presence of the lamb, the sacrificial substitute, and get a new identity, a satisfying name. Come and see. Come, see, be amazed by his grace. Two applications. One, if you're a follower of Christ today, 
Are you taking the idea of discipleship and this, this walking with Jesus, not only following him, but sharing him, are you taking that seriously? Desire seriously to share him with others? If not, why not? Ask yourself that question. We see in Scripture meeting Jesus, sharing Jesus, meeting Jesus, sharing Jesus, explosion in the New Testament. Do you understand the grace and mercy and kindness that God has shown toward you? Do you understand the method in which he uses to declare his good news and demonstrate it to others and to expand his kingdom is through us? You should say, really me? Yeah, really you. And really me. Number two, do you know Jesus? If not, come and see. Come and see. We're going to worship him. He's alive. If you don't know him, turn from your sins and trust him. He's access to the Father. He can reconcile you. He can forgive you of all your sin, all your rebellion. Do you hear his call? Come and see. Father, thank you for this clarity of Scripture, the story you have lavished on us to see your, your children respond to you, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The omniscient, all-knowing, ever-present God knows us intimately and yet still came to earth to die for our sins. Oh, what a grace you lavished upon us. Father, we pray that as we learn from you that we will point people to you, to Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, to look like Jesus. Lord, we be humbled enough to recognize our brokenness and, and, and weakness, Lord, and not cover it up. And Lord, we pray that as you say to everyone, come and see, you'd open up hearts even now to see your glory, to repent of sin, and to trust in you and you alone. In Jesus' good name.